for downloading this artist talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia for the 2016 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art. In this live recording, South Australian glass artist Tom Moore discusses the creation of his work on display in Magic Object. Without further ado, please welcome Tom Moore. It is a pleasure to be exhibiting in this gallery and in this exhibition and it's a great privilege to be part of it. And it's a funny place to find myself, I guess, in one way, because I've concentrated my entire professional life learning an ancient craft which in some ways has very little to do with modern art, but is also a very good vehicle for um, exploring any issue, I suppose. And so I am definitely a specialist glass blower, and I have an unusual amount of training um, I'm lucky that I saw glass blowing when I was young enough to be able to learn how to do it and also that I saw glass blowing and got hooked at the right time in the history of the world. So I was able to learn Venetian technique in Australia and that was pretty much an impossibility until the late 80s. So... um, The history of the techniques that I use is very old. The blowpipe was invented by the ancient Romans in the first century and glassblowing very quickly proliferated throughout the Roman Empire and so it became, it was from the beginning, the quickest way you could make functional vessels. So every, well, fairly soon pretty much every reasonably, reasonable sized uh, town had a glass studio and they were making bottles. And so um, I guess I continue that tradition of glass blowing, and I've made hundreds of bottles as a production worker. But the history of glass is also totally inseparable from a history of um, innovation and spectacle, sort of showing off, I I suppose, but also um, making fanciful and wonderful things. And so I've got a very good grounding in the craft, which is mostly making functional tableware, but also from the very beginning I've been trying to make these imaginary things and um, and luckily I've had teachers who know the process of sculpting um, all kinds of animals and plants and also the decorative processes which you can see in many of these pieces with the line work which is called um, 
various names. I mean, there's a few different kinds of cane, which is what we call the stripy glass rods. Um, but that was well established. It's been documented from 1540 in Venice. And so um, it's pretty old. And a lot of the forms are very similar to what ancient Romans were using. This, and so these decorative techniques were not possible until it was um, until well Venice had control of the trade routes in the Mediterranean, so they had very pure raw materials, so they could make a really good clear glass and also a very hard white, which meant that they could make these stripes like in this thing. So that big head there has those really fine lines in it. This is the sort of technique that I got hooked on when I was in first year at art school. And it probably takes about 10 years to get good at it. So there's some examples of little bits of that stuff here. When we make it, we make, depending on the design, it may be um, about three metres of this kind of stuff. And so you can use it for a few different things, especially if you mix up the patterns like I have here. So there's a little video that's going to play on the telly. So I don't know if you can see that, but um, this shows how you make those rods. So I'm gathering glass out of the furnace, and the first thing I'm going to make is just a long clear rod, and that's going to be used to make the spaces between black lines. So I've got the mass of glass shaped in a cylinder and it's heated so that it's going to do what I want it to do. And I'm sticking it onto another five foot long steel rod, which my assistant has prepared. And then I'll stick them together and we'll pull it apart at just the right rate so that it doesn't get too thin. If you pull too soon, it will fall on the floor. So you've got to just kind of work with the temperature. And so you can see over that length, which is probably five metres or more, it's flexible, like optic fibre. But uh, at this, you know, when you cut it that short, it's not really visibly flexible. So I've got a bunch of those lines, and I've spaced them with black, similar cane, which has got a black core. And now I've got to measure it to make sure that um, I've, the mass of clear glass that I'm going to roll it around is the right size. I give it a little squeeze so they're just slightly stuck together. And then if the mass is right, it should be close to a good fit. And then I have to close that fairly carefully and then I have to melt it fairly carefully, which takes about five minutes or more, to squeeze all the little air bubbles between each of those lines back. If I close both ends, there'll be air trapped between each line and then it's not good for blowing anymore because it's full of air. But... Um, I can still use it if it's not perfect cane to make solid sculpture. But anyway, I'm trying to make it perfect. I'm trying to continue this tradition, which is hundreds of years old, well. 
So um, then I've got to get at the right temperature again and start twisting it as it as we pull it. And so I spent many hours with a broomstick learning how to do this particular move and um, hopefully you end up with a reasonably parallel thing so the very end is very thick but I can use that for legs but hopefully the middle of the cane is reasonably parallel and I've got enough to make a vessel. So that's... Um, So then you use that cane in very lots of different ways. So you can just chop it all up again into another, you know, into equal lengths, put them on the same steel plate and wrap it around a blowpipe. So a sheet becomes a cylinder, then you close the end and you've got a bubble, and then you can make whatever. So I can make a bottle or a bowl or a bird or whatever. And I can mix those different canes up to create different patterns again and there's lots of different patterns to make in that cane so there's probably hundreds of variations from history and also people are still developing new patterns and ways of working with different kinds of glass that you can buy today so um, what you know I can buy the thing is now I don't have to be a chemist to be a glass blower and there's no way I could make this variety of work if I had to be a chemist as well as being a glass blower because that's a lifetime's dedication just to get the chemistry of it right. So there's a company in New Zealand and the guy who runs the company is a genius and, um, a, you know, a scientist and so he... Um, has developed the recipes for all of the colours that I use and also he wrote the recipe for the clear glass. Glass is a very fussy material and you can only put glass with glass. It won't stick to steel or, I mean, it sticks to it when it's hot but as it cools down it's going to explode away from that because they cool at different rates. And this glass is not compatible with bottle glass or window glass. Window glass and bottle glass are not compatible. So there are thousands of patented recipes for glass and they have different characteristics depending on what they're designed to do. And so this is a very specialist glass just for handmade sort of artwork or giftware or whatever. So it's about as hot as you can get close to without burning. And the reason why they keep it as hot as they can is it's more durable. If, it's a, um, if it melts at a higher temperature, it's more durable. You can make glass at a very low temperature, but it's water-soluble, which is not very handy. This room is... Uh, I guess in this room we've got... Some objects are about 12 years old. Um, I've been blowing glass since 1990, so 25 years and more or less full-time, which is really unusual because um, when I went to art school, there were two people in my year, so I was able to blow glass almost every day and part of my training was to assist many other students and there were, it was a very small 
group of students and they were surprisingly skilled because that was the time when the Venetian maestros were starting to teach these secrets outside of Venice, so in America, in um, Washington State. They started to teach these techniques and the same guy who's the most famous glass blower who's ever lived, Lino Taglia Pietra, has been to Adelaide three times to teach as well. I don't know if you know, Adelaide is one of the hot spots for glass in the world. It's definitely, I mean, there are, there, it's the, by far the highest concentration of glass blowers in the southern hemisphere, but also it's a world-class facility at the jam factory. And so um, there are not that many places in the world where you can actually make this work. And I've been, I was employed by the jam factory for 15 years as the production manager. So I was making straight commissions most of the time. So um, corporate gifts and trophies mostly. But also I was training people in how to make tableware and their own exhibition work. So anyway, I've had, um, I mean, it's, it is these days very, very unusual to have access to hot glass because it's so expensive and um, especially for that amount of time. But also people in the past might have blown glass every day, but they would have only made the same thing again and again and again, like bottles, just bottles. So for me to have had a varied experience is really unusual. So that's the, wa that's the reason why I ca have been able to develop this many different kinds of work, which are all focused on hot glass, is that I've been doing it every day pretty much for my whole working life. And so, and one, so one day a week I was able to make whatever I wanted. So this room probably has about five years worth of one day a week. And, um, but during the week I would do the drawing and I'd make some of the parts because at home I can make the leaves and the eyes. And um, so I take the cane, which I've made at, at the furnace, and I heat, heat up little bits and then I can use a torch to make little things. And I heat them all back up to make a big construction. So I was pretty keen to give the audience an immersive experience and to kind of, um, you know, the theme of the magic object show is the cabinet of curiosities. So I guess I was thinking about that. I mean, it's a theme that I've been interested in anyway pretty much since the beginning and sort of writing histories of these objects as if they actually exist as creatures is something that I find quite amusing. Um, and so um, the, the history of those cabinets of curiosity is sort of peppered with fakes as well, so that I find that pretty interesting. So I guess a lot of these things are, well, one of the themes that I'm interested in is to make a, um, a creature which combines plants, animals, people and machines neatly into one organism. 
and I'm interested in the kind of impact that human um, activity has had on the environment and I think we could all agree it hasn't all been good. Um, and part of my predicament, I guess, is that glass blowing contributes to global warming and um, environmental um, destruction. So that is a tricky thing, but I think um, it is possible that this work might draw attention to that paradox and also may, I don't know, well I'm still working on it and I, I, I don't think it's time to give up just yet to stop making glass, but I think certainly I have to be able to justify it in other ways in my life. So that's an ongoing predicament. But I guess we all share that. We are complicit in this problem. Anyway, I don't know if that's probably long enough and I should open up to questions or whether I should just keep talking or... Um, so, the inflatable is invisible <laughs> at the moment. It's, it had to be remade. It should be back before Easter, we're hoping. So, I don't know if you know, but the object, the highest object on that plinth with the spinning turntable is the model for the inflatable and when Lisa Slade invited me to be part of the show she asked me if I would like to design something to be translated into an inflatable to be shown on North Terrace as the sort of face of the biennial and of course I was thrilled by the idea and so um, we talked about the sort of objects that would possibly translate into something spectacular and came up with that. Um, well, I mean, she gave me a very open brief and I sort of ran with it. And we'll see when they deliver it whether it is possible. Um, I hope it will be spectacular. Um, on the screen there, I don't know how many of you saw, there was a projection on the outside of the gallery during the fringe and so I worked with Electric Canvas, which is a company that specialises in projections on buildings. So they're in Sydney and they have one particular animator who we sort of um, got along very well and so I had a few meetings with him and many phone conversations. And all of these objects have been photographed in very high resolution by a local photographer. And several of them have been photographed um, in rotation. So we take 24 frames, so it's five minute in increments and then um, it's possible to put those images into a program and get it to spin. And so 
I'd already started working with that because I've done several other animations in the past because I love seeing these things move because I guess in my imagination they sort of do and when they're hot they move like I can sort of play with them once I've built one of these objects I, can, I have to pose it so I have to kind of warm up different limbs and get them to be something and have a look and usually I'm working very closely to a drawing so here is a drawing of something I made last Thursday and um, so that's the top like the stopper of a bottle and there's the bottle you can have a look at these after the talk and um, maybe we should have questions Could I just ask the um, sand that you've used on the left here is that um, glass that sand that you would make glass out of or what's the source of that? Um, that's from, it's road based that stuff, it's just blue metal and dolomite so it's just, um, it's talking about the road and it's certainly not ready to be made into glass, it's very it, it's very hard crushed rock so the main ingredient of glass is silica and it needs to be quite pure to make clear glass so it's from it's mined from a beach, and that they want to find the beach that has um, only a very small trace of iron. Iron is the main contaminant of silica, and that's why window glass is green when you look down the edge because it has a bit of iron in it. But it's only a very small um, part of a percentage. So to make this clear, they have to get sort of halfway good, halfway pure silica and the, they reserve the purest silica for optical glass. So it doesn't matter to me if this is a little bit green. And you can see the colour of the, this is quite green. Anyway, anything else? The large piece of work on the far wall with the multiple colours, is that all done with rods as well, with, with the carrot on the front? Yes, well, sort of. So in that case, the twisted lines are transparent colours rather than opaque colours. And so because when you twist the colour and then blow it, they the colours flatten out, so you're seeing the back and the front at the same time. So if I've got blue and red, it will make purple where it crosses. It's a bit like tartan, do you know what I mean? So the colours mix, but they, they also keep their integrity. So where it overlaps itself, it's very intense. Red plus red is very red with transparent glass. Do you know what I mean? And the colour looks vibrant because it is transmitted. So it's being, it's not just reflected. So if you, if when light hits an opaque um, material, it reflects back the colour of the, that thing. But when it's a transparent material, it's transmitting, it's bouncing through and back to you. So this object has silver leaf 
behind the transparent colour. And then, so it's like little mirrors which are reflecting really intense transmitted colour to your eye. So that's why it looks very, you know, um, sort of spectacular. I'm impressed by this huge body of work you have. So do you never sell the pieces? I have to sell them, otherwise I can't keep making them because it's very expensive for me to make this stuff. So the, this object here is actually two pieces. There's the head and then there's the car and the plant. The car and the plant is one thing, which I made on one day, and the head is a separate thing. But that's almost as big as I can make with three assistants. So, because we have to keep that thing moving for about two hours, so I need a couple of... Uh, well, it certainly helps if you've got people who are a bit taller than me. It just Height seems to be a real advantage if you're going to make something big with glass. And so I've got one guy who's particularly tall and he's handy to have around. But it's good... I mean, if there was five of me, four of me, I could do that. I could make that. But I certainly can't do it by myself. And it's... Like, this, this one guy is um, handy, you know, he's natural. So it's good to have him around. But, um, yeah, so to attempt to make that is more than $500. And it's risky. So several times I attempt to do something like that and it will just smash. So if I don't sell some of these objects, there's no way I can not only live... I can't pay those people. There's no way I can keep making it. So I also have to hire the facilities, and it's probably a million-dollar facility that I work out of. And so um, the the rent on four-hour sessions is about $250 for four hours. So it all adds up, and then the colour is expensive. The photography is one of my main costs. And so, and these things don't exist until they're photographed. It's like they don't, they, they might as well not exist until I can send a photograph around the world and suddenly it kind of, um, I don't know, unless it's recorded, it sort of might as well not exist. So the, it's worth me spending as much money to photograph the work as it is to make it in one way. But so, yes, these objects, several of them are from our archive. So they come from our, you know, from my own collection because this is something like a retrospective. But I do have many more that aren't here as well. So I have made a lot of things, for sure, way more than my fair share. But... Um, there are a lot more that have sold, and if I hadn't sold those, then I couldn't keep doing it. You and Lunig seem to have a lot in common. He, he plays with the images, but also with words. Do you use words at all to go with your images? So there's a, there's a few words in the room. It says, label everything, which is just behind you. It says, quality glass tester, which is the hammer. And then over there it says, eat me, I am delicious. <laughs> so 
So I guess they are sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm sort of wary of using text a lot, but um, it can it can be useful for sure. I mean, Lunig is a very big influence on me. Michael and Mary Lunig, both. And, um, yeah, I mean, there were times when I saw something that he'd done and I was like, you know, I, it was like he'd, there was a synchronicity there. And it was almost like I would be grumpy at him for publishing this idea first. So when Mr. Curley goes on holiday and he's got a, he's, I think he was riding in a hollowed out potato and then there's the duck, of course. He's always got the duck. I mean, it's, some of these objects inhabit a very similar world to some of his very innocent work. But of course, I think both of us have a kind of dread which underlies a lot of our motivation. And also, um, you know, there's humour, but there's also, you know, bad stuff, lots of bad stuff in the world. I just wondered if it gets broken, can you reuse it? Often, yes. And I have fixed many things. Uh, you know, I've heated the whole thing up and, and fixed it, but also uh, some of these parts I can, you know, if this falls off that, I can use it on something else. Glass is like glue. It absolutely does not just go along um, everything is meticulously planned. So I made this object on Thursday and it's got 81 parts and I knew exactly where each one was going to go. So um, I draw them full size and I use calipers to measure all the parts and I try to make them exactly like the drawing. Um, have you ever thought of putting voice to your animations? Yes. Um, have I ever thought of putting a voice to my animation? Um, so, I mean, I'd love to do books and or other movies where these objects and narratives are um, expanded. And there are a few animations on YouTube where my wife did all of the Foley sound and I've written some stories which could easily be narrated. Um, I think that that's um, a good thought and I'm really just waiting for enough time to elaborate on the narrative. Thank you so much.